0: Hello and welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. Philosophers have long tried to silence the physical musicality of voice in favor of the purity of ideas without matter, souls without bodies. But voices resonate among bodies and texts. They are singular, as unique as fingerprints, but irreducibly collective, too. They are material, somatic, and musical. Voices also give body two concepts that cannot exist in abstraction, essential to sense, yet in excess of it. They complicate the logos of the beginning and emphasize the infleshing of all words. The book that we're going to talk about today, The Matter of Voice, explores all this and more through theology and philosophy, pedagogy, translation, and semiotics. It is a beautifully written and challenging book. Its author, Carmen McKendrick, is Professor of Philosophy at Lemoyne College. I'm pleased to welcome her to NBIR. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. I'd like to begin at the beginning. How did you come to the study of philosophy and theology?
1: Well, I started in philosophy first. I had actually been a psychology major as an undergraduate at the University of Colorado at Boulder, which had and I believe still has an excellent philosophy department. I discovered in psychology that every time we got to what I thought were the really fun questions, such as how we know the brain and the mind are the same, or what in the world a self might possibly be, they were sort of brushed aside as already given or obvious. But in my philosophy classes, we were allowed to take them up. So I think that I was drawn to philosophy first by it being the place in which I could take up all of the questions that weren't allowed in other disciplines. And I've always, I think liked questions a little more than answers. That's probably evident in the book as well. My path to theology was probably even less direct. I think that it came primarily just through my use of texts. As I was working in philosophy, working on issues that really interested me, especially language and the body and the nature of pleasure and desire, I kept finding that texts that were from the history of religion or of theology were really useful to me, that there was a longer history, often, of those concepts in the theological texts than there was in philosophy. And so I was using those Still, completely considering myself a philosopher, and then one semester I taught as a sabbatical replacement in the theological school at Drew, and people informed me that I was a theologian. So, I, I guess I sort of came to that through other people's voices.
0: I love that. That is certainly one way to begin to understand the self <laughs> when I voices, so. other voices, tell you what you are. Exactly.
1: And they seemed like smart voices.
0: <laughs> as you mentioned, uh, questions about language and the body have long interested you. What brought you to this particular study? When did the study of voice start speaking to you?
1: That's a hard question. I guess there there's both an immediate sort of answer pertaining to the book and then a much longer answer, or an answer that covers a much longer historical period. The book itself came about in what is, at least for me, a really unusual manner. Usually, I know I'm writing a book. You would think that's not the sort of thing you can do accidentally. But I have a good friend, Patricia Cox Miller, with whom I often do a a reading group, a reading duet and we will sometimes read each other's work in advance and she had read several pieces of mine and one day mentioned to me that i had enough work on voice over the past couple of years to make a book and i suddenly realized that in fact that was what i had been writing about um without quite realizing how strong the thematic coherence of that was so again like Theology. It's something that came to me in part from the outside, from someone else speaking, that hasn't been true of any other book length work that I've done. Um, The longer version is I think that I have been interested in voices just about as long as I can remember. from the time that I was a pre-teen, I've been told that I sound exactly like my mother. So I think that aroused some interest in me. Um, but my mother has a beautiful singing voice that I don't seem to have inherited. And... I think that it was an interest in the question of what it means for one person to sound or speak like another, for her voice to resonate in mine, that probably got me started. Uh, that and the fact that I had a very spoiled childhood with people reading to me all the time. It really brought home a very physical sense of what a voice is, what writing is, what books are that I might not have had without those events um, very early in my life.
0: On that note, I was wondering how you developed your your own voice. I'm sort of doing scare quotes there, quote, unquote, your own voice. Um, can you tell us a bit about this process? I was actually thinking of one of the sections or mentions in the book of V.S. Nepal, who brought together his father's voice with that of 16th, a 16th century Spanish novel of all things, and yes. that he said that this for him was formative. What about for you?
1: Yes, I loved finding that piece from him. I think it's the most amazing combination. For me, the process was um, both different and yet in some ways similar. I think I really started consciously considering my own writing voice at the point of my dissertation, and the consideration started in a kind of negative way, because I realized, as I was trying even to come up with a project, that I didn't want to have to read bad writing for the next several years. So, I actually based my dissertation work on people I was pretty sure I could stand to read for a very long time. So there's a lot of Freud in there. He's an absolutely stunning writer. He actually won a literature prize for his writing, a lot of Nietzsche because he's so lively, Uh, and a fair amount of Augustine, who of course is a beautiful rhetorician, as well as a small amount of consideration of poetry. And as I was working on that to make sure that I didn't start to sound too um, heavy, (laughs) too Germanic, maybe, in my own philosophical writing, I also made sure to keep reading poetry on the side. So, I think that My means of developing it was actually not so much to think about my own voice as to make sure that I was being influenced by good voices so that I allowed whatever my own voice is to emerge from that. My conscious effort was just to keep the influences as graceful as possible.
0: I love how you pause in the book to remind us about what happens in the process of citation, because this is taught to us as students and then as scholars, and I think it becomes such a natural part of how we write that we really don't think about it that much, but you pause and you tell us, remember that what we're doing is reincarnating in a sense, the phrases of others. We're melding our voices with theirs, at this social process of citation. As you were working on this book in particular, who are some of the writers with whom you thought whose voices resonated for you and perhaps some writers and thinkers as well, who you felt like you were writing against?
1: The first part is much easier. Um, there's always Augustine even when I try not to let there be <laughs> as a way of sneaking into everything um so he's certainly there just the sheer beauty of his phrasing as, well as his ideas I think is always an influence for me and one thing that I love in him is that he often seems to be working against himself that is he's trying to so hard to be rational and precise, and as he points out in the Confessions, even to do away with rhetoric and its seductive influence. But it's as if he can't help being beautiful. And I really enjoy that, and the way that it sort of sneaks in. Another would be Anne Carson, who is just such a stunning writer. But it's her meditations on... Quotation, particularly, I think that I had in mind as I tried to consider citation. She's the person from whom I first read about the contagion of quoting, which I think is such a wonderful way of thinking about it. That is, there's something about quoting someone that infects you not only with that person's words, but with the ideas And the way that they're embodied in the words, that is, you can't reuse the words without the concepts or the concepts really without the words. So those are certainly two of the thinkers with whom I was trying to work pretty consciously. Um, A third would be Jean-Luc Nancy, whose work on resonance utterly fascinates me and I'm using it without being entirely sure that I understand it still. Um, Occasionally, people will ask me to explain it, and I tend to go a little bit blank. But I know that I love it, and there are certainly phrases there that resonate with me or that are contagious to me
0: at the beginning of the book, you you do begin, and this is not to say that Roland Barthes is the only person who said this, but you begin very powerfully by writing about Bart declaring that the author is dead, this revolt against subjectivity. Could you speak a little bit about that moment, which inspires uh, the beginning of this book and thinking about voice and, and enfleshment and vis-a-vis philosophy?
1: I can certainly try. I use that line or that phrase a little bit mischievously there, because, of course, Bach himself I meant something fairly subtle by that. That is that we can't understand written work by appealing to the ultimate authority of a biography, of a biographical author, a person who has the ultimate say on the matter, that we have to consider the history of readers and the context and so on. But like a lot of things in the history of a lot of kinds of thought, that does get taken up with a kind of, enthusiasm that doesn't always have room for subtleties <laughs> and so we do get a very strong revolt against um the the presence of the author at all. And certainly, I think that we still have a voice in works in which we don't know the author or we're working with a pseudonymous author, but there is something very material about voice. And one thing that for me was sort of mischievously fun about using Barthes' death of the author was that he's also one of the best thinkers of the sheer sensuous fleshiness of voice but there are certainly areas of philosophy in which someone like Barthes firmly pushed aside into literature so that we don't have to deal with him. And I think part of uh, what intrigues me in that respect is that when I started my graduate work in philosophy, I went to a superb department in the University of California at Irvine, but it's a very deeply analytic department that is a department that's focused on Anglo-American philosophy with a very strong emphasis on logic and um, not a place with a lot of room for sensuality or the literary or the ambiguous. And I realized how much I wasn't enjoying that and transferred to a much more interdisciplinary program at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. But while I was at Irvine, Derrida was there occasionally. He taught in the comparative literature department and we learned quickly not to speak of him in philosophy. So I think that that interesting tension um, of who can and cannot be counted as a philosopher, what it is about some people's philosophy that makes other philosophers want to keep them out of the fold is kind of fascinating to me, in part because of that experience.
0: And that really gets back at one of the themes in the book, which is, as we mentioned briefly before, the sociality of voice, whose voices are allowed to speak and in what contexts. Speaking of which, one of the chapters that most interested me was your chapter about pedagogy, um, perhaps because I'm in the midst of furiously trying to plan courses right now. You explore pedagogy today and in monastic settings. Can you tell us a little bit about this chapter and also how you were thinking about voice and temporality in this context?
1: That chapter came about from a call for A journal issue on pedagogy. And at the time that I got the call, I had been thinking about monasticism, but not about pedagogy particularly. So, the chapter began in trying to think about that intersection. Is there any way that the kind of self-transformative learning that monasticism valued so much, and still does, I believe, although... Of course, it doesn't have nearly the cultural impact that it would have once. Can that self-transformation be brought forward into contemporary college and university classes, which seemed a little bit hopeless at first? But in looking at monastic learning, I realized how much of it had to do with two things that might be accessible to us now, repetition and reading aloud. The monastic day and year are structured around recurrent cycles. There is a daily office in which At several different times of the day, the entire community will gather for prayers based around a cycle of psalms that recurs over the course of an entire year. So each time you revisit, presumably at least, you're not just getting bored by looking at the same material, but you're bringing to it the enrichment of Previous visits, you're doing it in a community, um, and so that enriches the reading, both in terms of the sound of the voices, but also of the conversations among the community. And you're reading aloud, which also gives you, I think, a richer sense of the text. This necessarily means that you're approaching texts much more slowly than we tend to, Uh, And part of the reason, if you're anything like me and trying to structure courses, is that it's so hard to leave the good stuff out. There are always so many things that you're really sure at the start of the semester your students would love to read, even if you're disabused of that idea halfway through. Um, So I tried to work really with the idea that you could go through things slowly and you could repeat and go back to them and see how they've been changed by things in between and that we needed to have an openness to little divergences that might occur in a community. You can't really run a community well if there's one person in charge, even in the monastery, although there is a very hierarchical structure, ultimately the authority is more scriptural, really, than invested in a particular person. I think another factor, which I probably mention in the course of half a sentence uh, in that chapter, but that has been really fascinating to me, is what good students' theater majors are, uh, what good philosophy students' theater majors are. And, I've wondered if it might be because their practice in reading includes being able to present what they're reading with the right affect, at the right tempo, and so on. And that necessarily gives them a different kind of understanding. They have to be able to understand the sentence in order to bring affect and tempo and so on to it. And... So that consideration as well, emerging from my teaching, came together with my efforts to think about self-transformation in both monastic and
0: contemporary
1: contexts.
0: I was going to uh, ask you a bit about how you've revocalized your own classroom. So what does it look like in your classrooms at Le Moyne College?
1: It's a slow process. (laughs) I do try to do more reading aloud and to have the students do more of it. Um, One thing that I've done just a little bit is when I have something with divisions, such as a poem or a scriptural text from the Bible, especially something that has very clear places to cut off, is simply to have the students try to read it through each taking a different piece. So each taking a line of the poem or each taking a verse of the text and seeing how the text comes to life in that series of voices. I've loved doing that. The problem is, of course, there are always a few people who forgot the text that day and That can can be a little disruptive of the the emerging harmony. Um, But I think the key thing that I have managed to do is to slow down in a way that allows for uh, tangents and diversions. But all of this really is something I'm still working on, still struggling towards. Um, It's a delicate balance with the very legitimate economic concerns that students have and the fact that many of them are in college to make sure they can get decent jobs and the sense that this kind of self-transformation might not have a direct employment relevance. Um, So I do try to get them to see that although the impact on their employment prospects might not be direct. They might also be happier people with richer lives if they can um, engage themselves and transfigure themselves in these ways as well. And sometimes, of course, it works better than others.
0: I wonder whether there were any monks back in the day, you know, forgot their texts. They had to head back to their cells and get the texts (laughs) and made me sort of picture what that, that world would have been like. I'm I'm sure if I had been a monk, it would have been me. (laughs) So That's right. I found incredibly fascinating how you explore the mainly Christian vision of a perfect unity between sound and meaning. A time when sound and sense, as you put it, were so closely entwined as to be one in Christian theology, how do these ideas play out? Where do they come from? They have tended to be pretty marginal, really. Uh, but you can
1: certainly base them on interpretations of Genesis, which I try to do later in the book, especially what's the very first line of the shared texts of the Hebrew and Christian Bible, in which we read that creation occurs by word, right, Uh, God says. And people have wondered, of course, almost from the time they started reading this, rather than transmitting it orally, what in the world that could mean, right? What does it mean if God speaks? And once theology gets complicated enough that people start thinking of an immaterial God, what could that possibly mean, What could the sound of such a voice be? Um, Is it pure sense, pure meaning? But if so, how can it create in a material world? And then, of course, by uh, certainly by the fifth century, uh, but probably a bit earlier, you start to get ideas such as Augustine's out of uh, creation out of nothing. So. Part of the concern with the relation between sound and sense actually comes even from the interpretations of the moment of creation. But in the chapter to which you're referring, the chapter on translation, the work that is the most fun, I think, really comes up in medieval philosophy, which has a lot of wonderfully strange considerations of language. You get a lot of interest then in the possibility of a universal language and a lot of wonderfully complicated efforts to create a universal language. Part of the concern there is that people in Christian communities were increasingly aware of uh, not only the fact that there were people of other faiths, uh, such as Judaism around them, but uh, of the existence of Islam as well. And they wanted to be able to bring the, scare quotes, truth to all people, but they were worried about how they could do that in the face of the diversity of languages. So they were attempting to, come up with a universal language in order to speak to all people. And that often met with interpretations of the story of Babel, uh, which is also biblical, which claims that originally there was a universal language, uh, one language for all of humankind. The problem was that having that humans cooperated a little too well and got full of themselves and tried to build a tower up to the heavens and God got annoyed with them and made sure it wouldn't happen again by separating the languages. So there was also a lot of discussion of what that original language could have been. So you have a desire for a perfect universal language kind of forward-looking, and the inquiry into an original language, which many of them thought must have been Hebrew, in a kind of backward-looking way. And all of this is taking place over a long span of the Middle Ages, uh, up through Dante, at least, who is convinced that language must have began when the first humans, or more precisely, the first man, (laughs) he does not want women to have spoken first, when the first man cried out in joy to God. So that, I think, is really where you start to get the the interesting possibilities for translation.
0: As you alluded a moment ago, the quest for perfect meaning does bring us to this notion of translation. How have theologians and philosophers debated what it means to translate language uh, beyond the, the medieval period? So rather than thinking of it naively as a word for word expression of accurate meaning.
1: This... Is a little beyond, no, this is a lot beyond me. Um, There is a lot of work on translation that I simply don't know. But there has been a lot of interest in translation coming out of Benjamin, particularly out of, of Walter Benjamin's considerations which link it back to Jewish philosophy, including Kabbalistic philosophy. So he is one of the people, actually, who is interested in that question of an original language. So considerations of translation philosophically have been... Really, throughout the 20th century into the present, entangled with considerations of semiotics um, and what it means to translate across languages, certainly, and whether you can do that at all, whether it's more important to capture a strict denotation or what interested Benjamin—a sort of shape of meaning or a vessel for meaning—a a very Kabbalistic reference on his part. Um, And then uh, you have someone like Umberto Eco, who is uh, sometimes brought into philosophy, sometimes not, again, depending on what sort of a philosopher you are and how interdisciplinary you're willing to be. But he's, also very interested in questions of what he calls intersemiotic translation. And that, I think, is a living philosophical interest as well. How do you translate not only from one language to another, but, say, from physical gesture to word or uh, from word to visual image What's going on in that kind of translation? What does it have in common with uh, translations in language and so on? But there is also work in philosophy of language that I'm confident is interesting, but I just don't know well enough to say
0: anything intelligent about Well, you did note at one point, maybe in the introduction, but you sort of tossed out a topic that's ripe for a PhD student right now to write about, which is sign language and thinking about translations and voice in that context. So our students listening to this podcast should be alerted that there's a fascinating project there.
1: (laughs) Yes, I would love to work with someone on that. Um, I have a little bit of background in dance. So I think I have a lot of interest in physical movement and the ways that it can express, but for it to express in a way that is so directly linguistic is just fascinating to me. So, yes, students, not only is this a great thing to work on, but contact me if you're (laughs) looking.
0: Perfect. I assume, because I'm not a philosopher, but I assume that most philosophers probably wouldn't have worked Hildegard of Bingen into their work. She's well known, though, of course, in religious studies and medieval studies. She's a delightful surprise in your book, a surprise to me anyway. And your rendering of her thinking is quite wonderful. Could you tell us a bit about why you chose to emphasize her in particular and what aspects drew you?
1: I think, really, I just fell in love with that hymn that I discuss in that chapter. It's a hymn that is an antiphon, a piece that would have been sung to set up one of the songs in the daily office for the monastic community that she ran. It's a hymn that is addressed to the Father, And it's addressed very directly. Uh, Her community says you there. It interested me in its own right, but it also interested me because for the purposes of this book, because she is a fascinating combination of so many different fields, including a brilliant philosopher and a brilliant uh, musician. And, this song would have had a musical setting, in fact, does have a musical setting. We still have it. I was able to listen to it. And so it was both first being struck with the beauty and the philosophical interest of the question of what it means to address a god, something that I've thought about before. I had written on prayer in some earlier work as well, and the fact that this was done musically that really excited me. I also had available to me an amazing resource um, in the person of Anne Yardley, a former dean at Drew Theological School, who is a medieval musicologist with a focus on Hildegard. So I was incredibly lucky to be able to sit with her one afternoon for a couple of hours with the score in front of us to this particular hymn and go over the ways in which the words and the music map onto each other in such an intricate and fascinating way. So I guess because of the philosophy-music intersection. She seemed to me just perfect for this text.
0: Another delightful surprise, although I suppose less surprising now that you've told me about your interest in Augustine and Nietzsche, but a delightful surprise for me was your twinning of these two figures um, to explicate their respective semiotic theories. And so I was going to ask you how you came up with that pairing, but as you said, they, they are presences for you and have been for a long time. Yes. But what do you aim to do in that discussion? And Maybe you could speak a little bit more about the ways that they both reflect and build on each other.
1: I think I first paired those two as far back as my dissertation. I had a Nietzsche scholar on my dissertation committee who, whose mind sort of just turned aside when you hit anything religious, so he didn't really like the Augustan parts of it. (laughs) Um, But they, they did seem to me to work together so well. And I think the reason that they seem to do that is perhaps that I studied Nietzsche first, and he's very interested in the physicality, the carnality of consciousness and language and concept and very dismissive of the turn that philosophy has taken towards making those things pure abstractions. He was also a composer, although his music is very pretty in a surprising way. It certainly lacks the radicality and surprisingness of his philosophy. And in reading Augustine on language, especially in the Confessions, uh, it's certainly not the only place in which he discusses language, uh, but it's probably the place in which he does so most personally. He too is interested in the ways in which language is not just conceptual, but sonorous, Uh, when he tries to figure out the meaning of time, he does so through the analysis of a hymn and the length of the syllables in it. And he realizes that you can only know, only understand, as the sound comes to an end, the sound of a particular word or a line or of the hymn itself. So he really has voice and hearing as part of his sense of the understanding of language. So for me, those were really my initial exemplars of a sense that, of course, language has to be voiced and meaning has to be embodied, I think, to both of them it would have been a little bit strange for it to be otherwise.
0: I was curious about the methodology of the book. Is You said it sort of came to you when one of those smart voices in your life said, well, you've got enough to make a book. Did you end up ordering the chapters according to when you wrote them? Or how, how did you decide on the organization? No,
1: I didn't organize them chronologically. And I actually did engage in quite a bit of internal debate over the organization. I decided finally to organize them so that the thought could follow. Um, that is, I think that there, although they aren't conceived as a unit, there are still ways in which one chapter can take up the preceding one, at least a bit, or some of the work that's been done in the preceding one. So I tried to do something developmental in organizing them. It's a bit loose, I think, um, in that sense. It's certainly not as intentionally developmental as a book that was conceived as a book. Um, but I think that was my intention there. I do know that the first and last chapters were placed, the first having to do with um, why voices are material, how it is that they are not simply singular and so on, because that did seem to me to be kind of underlying in everything that came after. And then the final chapter has to do with trying to pin down, insofar as it is pin-downable, that music and meaning relation, as well as trying to note some of the ways in which that relation remains elusive. I'm always interested in what still eludes us in whatever we're thinking about.
0: It's true that the first chapter, now that you mention it, I absolutely see what you're saying. The first chapter is actually very personal in a lot of ways. It gets back to the question that I posed a while back about finding one's own voice. And and you talk a bit about uh, your experience in that regard. And at one point, I laughed out loud, because you note how embarrassing it's become to quote, for example, Flannery O'Connor at length, since you end up actually taking on her voice, a sort of Southern drawl. Yes. Now, of course, I'd like to hear your O'Connor, but if not, can you at least tell us if there are any other authors who are on your blacklist who who you can't (laughs) quote at length? Um.
1: O'Connor is definitely the most vivid one. Um, and I actually love reading her aloud, it, just because my, if I could only write like that, it just has such an astonishing voice. But I do really start to sound Southern, and I think anyone does who reads her aloud for more than a paragraph. I don't know that anyone else is blacklisted, but... But certainly, I think I may mention this in the same chapter, but the other one who's particularly strong for me in that regard is James Joyce. I find that um, if you read more than a couple of paragraphs of him, you start to sound slightly Irish, Um <laughs> Without trying to, he just has the music of the Irish accent down so beautifully. It's a little less strong than the Georgian in O'Connor for me, um, but it certainly comes through. I think I also mentioned James Baldwin there. Reading Baldwin was probably my first experience of how close. Language could come to music. I was completely blown away by reading him. And reading him aloud, I don't notice any sort of accent shift, but I do certainly feel very strongly the musical rhythm of his voice, uh, which sometimes feels a little bluesy, as in Sonny's Blues, the first text of his that I read, and sometimes almost. like sermonizing, um, but he he has a very powerful voice, even though it's not as accent-specific as the others for me.
0: I don't know if it's because I'm tone-deaf, but any time that I start affecting an accent, it always turns out cockney. <laughs> and this is, That's wonderful. This is something that my, my partner, it drives him nuts.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I have noticed, um, this will sound somewhat irrelevant, but... Adam Savage of the Mythbusters <laughs> will sometimes attempt to do accents, a French accent or a German accent, and somehow they always revert to Scots, which is- Very entertaining. And my husband invariably ends up with a sort of generic Southern, no matter what other accent he's attempting. So I think it's a pretty common experience. Though Cockney is new to me.
0: (laughs) It's a very, very bad Cockney accent. It probably is, (laughs) and it's probably entirely incorrect. (laughs) So if you could highlight a couple take home points for listeners from this book, ideas that you really are trying to impart, what would they be? I think the importance of
1: listening when one reads, as well as trying to understand, especially with difficult texts, and this would be a take-home, especially for students probably, although certainly for those of us who try to be scholars as well, often the meaning, the the sense, the sh- simple denotation of what we're reading is so difficult that we're just struggling for that and making our little conceptual notes and outlining arguments as we go along. But if you can possibly take the time to listen to it as well and read it out loud, I think you get whole new layers and kinds of meaning that you can miss otherwise. And Maybe if you're struggling with what you think of as conceptual, try even listening first. It may give you a way in. Um, Related to that slowing down, which is something that's so hard for me, I feel a little hypocritical in listing it as a takeaway, but it's one that I think is probably right and... I at least will continue to work on it. Um, What else would I like people to take away? That's probably the most important. But the other would be, once you start doing that, it's also a little easier to start looking for the voices and kinds of voices that haven't been heard as much. So, of course, um, that gives this a bit of a political resonance. But people early on reading, say, feminist theory could be dismissive of it because some of it was written in a way that didn't seem properly intellectual or academic. Uh, This is true as well for some queer theory. So I think thinking about the fact that all voices are really bodily and sensory and sensuous in some way can make you a little more alert to what's going on in voices that have had a harder way making it into the academic mainstream. And that might be a good thing as well.
0: Now, before we sign off, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what's on the horizon other than aspirations to slowness. What projects are you working on now?
1: Well, I have a couple of book projects that are sort of warring with each other right now. And although neither has to do directly with voice, I think that it's in both of them in a less direct way. The one that currently seems to be taking the lead is on the mysteriousness of materiality. And I've been drawn to it by my sort of amused interest in the ways in which many of the very contemporary approaches to materiality in the humanities, such as new materialism or object-oriented ontology are very careful and very clear to distance themselves from theology as if it were a contaminant of some sort, and yet end up seeing things that, like philosophy for me, could do well to draw on the rich history of theological texts. So, I want to look at that, and that, I think, shares in common with the Voice Project a sense that there are kinds of, in scare quotes, knowing or realizing or recognizing that aren't quite accessible to rational pinning down. The second project has to do in a very cheerful manner with exile and loss and abandonment. Um, And there I'm very interested in two things having to do with voice. One is the voice of lamentation with which I didn't deal here. Um, It does seem to me that there are particular kinds of lamenting voice in one of the Duino elegies. Rana Maria Rilke even personifies lament as a person. She was a lament And I think that that's going to be very interesting to explore. And the other is something that, again, some of those smart people in my life just raised with me, which is the scriptural voice in the wilderness, which also seems to be a voice that doesn't belong to anyone. And I'm thinking that there might be ways to weave that together with Maurice Blanchot's understanding of what he calls the neuter, which is a voice that doesn't belong to anyone, that he says is nonetheless always murmuring, that's his wonderful word, within all of our language. So again, neither the mystery of matter nor exile and abandonment will be particularly about voice, but I
0: think that voice is still going to be speaking within them. And thank you so much for taking the time to voice your thoughts and speak with us today.
1: Thank you for giving me the chance. I really appreciate it.